Summers tapped into two things, her intuition and critical thinking skills. She said, something just isn't right, Sarah. I had this patient yesterday and she wasn't like this. I don't know what's wrong, but something is wrong. That, my friend, is intuition. Trust it every time. And second, she used her critical thinking skills. She said, wouldn't she be tachycardic and hypertensive if it was just anxiety? And she was spot on. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. This episode is actually an episode that I recorded two years ago, but it's a good one. I am re-releasing it today for two reasons. One, a lot of my current listeners weren't listening back in 2020 when I started the podcast, and I want you to hear it. And more importantly, because there are some things that I want to expand upon a little bit. You know, there's so many things in nursing that we're just kind of taught and we just keep passing it down, passing it down. But there's so much nuance in healthcare. And so there's a couple things that I want to just uh, interject into this episode. As I say at the end of every episode, evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. I can't even begin to tell you how many things have changed in my 20 years as a nurse. There are things that I taught nurses that I preceded over the years that we no longer do because new research has proven it either useless or harmful. I don't ever want to be stuck in old dogma. As nurses, we are lifelong learners, which means that we can never know everything there is to know. And even if we think we've mastered a topic, we have to stay on our toes because our knowledge could be challenged by new research. Even if you've already listened to this episode, stay tuned because there's some parts that I'm going to pause and interrupt and further expand upon because I think it's important that we have a good grasp of this topic and not just blindly go into it based on things we've heard over the years, but really understand the rationale behind what we do or don't do for our patients. So without further ado, let's dive into the story. On today's podcast, I'll be sharing a story about a patient who had a not-so-typical presentation of a myocardial infarction and how we were still able to get her to the cath lab in record time. I arrived at the rapid response call to find a patient hyperventilating. She was a 50-ish-year-old female with a history of anxiety who was admitted for something non-cardiac related, so she wasn't even on telemetry. Her nurse called the rapid response team because her vital signs were concerning. Her heart rate was 52, and her blood pressure was 95 over 45, which doesn't sound that bad, right? Except that she'd been running much higher with a heart rate in the 80s and 90s and BP in the 130 systolic. The patient was complaining of generalized weakness and dizziness, 
and shortness of breath. She kept saying, it's probably just my anxiety. I, I feel so bad to bother you guys. Sometimes I just get like this, but it's always just anxiety. When I asked if she was having any chest pain, she adamantly denied it and said, it's not pain. I, I do still have some tightness in my chest, just like, like I can't catch my breath. So let's pause here. As nurses, we care for a lot of patients with anxiety, right? We have to fight not to get jaded and write off our patient's symptoms. It would have been easy for this nurse to just administer some Xanax or Ativan and gone on with her shift. It's not like the patient's vitals were super high or super low. But this nurse tapped into two things, her intuition and critical thinking skills. She said, something just isn't right, Sarah. I had this patient yesterday and she wasn't like this. I don't know what's wrong, but something is wrong. That, my friend, is intuition. Trust it every time. And second, she used her critical thinking skills. She said, wouldn't she be tachycardic and hypertensive if it was just anxiety? And she was spot on. Okay, back to the story. So even though the patient denied chest pain, she was having chest tightness. So I used our chest pain protocol to get her a stat EKG. The nurse called the doctor and filled her in while I started a second line on the patient, put her on some oxygen and brought over the defibrillators just so I could see her rhythm. And what do you know, the 12 lead EKG showed ST segment elevation in leads two, three, and AVF. She was having an inferior wall MI. The rest went very quickly. We sent the EKG to the cardiologist who called the STEMI alert and paged out the cath team. We had her to the cath lab within 15 minutes and they were able to open up her right coronary artery. Total time from when she called the rapid response team to when they inflated the balloon to reperfuse her heart was 45 minutes. Not bad for an atypical presentation. Go team. Now, let's break down the pathophysiology and treatment of inferior wall myocardial infarctions. As you probably know, a myocardial infarction is a heart attack in layman's terms, which I never really understood this verbiage. I mean, how confusing to someone who doesn't work in the medical field. Heart attack? What exactly is attacking the heart? Poor lifestyle choices? I don't know where they got this term. It's so confusing. When I explain to patients what a heart attack is, I say, so you have pipes all over your heart called coronary arteries, which carry blood and oxygen to the heart muscle itself. When one of those pipes gets clogged, part of the heart doesn't get the oxygen it needs and the heart cells start to die. We are going to call in a very expensive plumber called an interventional cardiologist to come unclog your pipe so your heart can get the oxygen it needs to keep beating properly. This has always seemed to make sense to patients and usually gives them a little comic relief in the midst of the fear of having a heart attack to think of the cardiologist as a very expensive plumber. And I personally get a kick out of referring to my highly intelligent and expertly trained cardiologist colleagues as very expensive plumbers. Anyways, patients can have blockages in any one of their coronary arteries, and usually we can tell which artery is occluded from the 12-lead EKG. Depending on which leads have ST segment elevation, we can determine which part of the heart muscle is dying. You could have an infarct on the side of your heart, the middle of your heart, the front of your heart, the back of your heart, or in this patient's case, the lower portion of the heart, the inferior wall. So an inferior wall MI is caused from occlusion of the right coronary artery, or at least most of the time. In fact, half the time, it's the RCA that feeds the right ventricle. If there is a right ventricular involvement, that can make initial treatment a little tricky. I'll get into that in just a minute. 
So first, you guys remember Mona from nursing school? You know, M-O-N-A. I can still hear my professor saying, Mona should greet every patient having chest pain. Although I hear now they're teaching it as O-N-A-M instead of Mona, so the morphine is last. But old habits die hard, and Mona is so much more catchy, so let's go with it. All right, let's review. M is for morphine, which we get for pain and to help vasodilate. A low dose of two to four milligrams is usually sufficient, but make sure you check the blood pressure before to make sure it's safe to administer and after to make sure the vasodilatory effect didn't drop the blood pressure too much. Next is O for oxygen because the heart is lacking it. So let's help it out a little bit by throwing on a nasal cannula for the couple liters of oxygen. The American Heart Association currently recommends only administering oxygen if the SpO2 is less than 94%. Next is N for nitroglycerin, which has a triple awesome effect. It vasodilates, which reduces preload. Preload is the amount of venous blood that's returning to the heart. So when you think of preload, think volume. Preload, volume. The vasodilation also reduces afterload. Afterload is the amount of resistance the heart has to push against to get the blood either up and out of the aorta for the left ventricle or the resistance that the right side of the heart has to push against to get the blood through the pulmonary artery and into the lungs. So tight vessels make high afterload and dilated vessels reduce afterload. So reducing preload, which is volume, and afterload, which is resistance, reduces the overall workload of the heart, which is helpful if your heart is lacking oxygen to do that work. Additionally, if you don't have a completely obstructed coronary, nitro can help dilate the coronaries and provide a little extra blood flow and oxygen to the dying myocardium. Let me just interrupt right here. I've been teaching for years that we have to get the nitroglycerin in because we've got to open the coronaries and save the patient's life. But actually, there's been no proven mortality benefit by giving nitroglycerin. Now, there's definitely benefit. I mean, there's value in that it reduces the patient's pain and it helps with uh, pulmonary congestion and it lowers blood pressure for hypertensive patients. If the patient's having a coronary artery vasospasm, it helps with that. But we can't really say we got to get the nitroglycerin to open up the vessels. So I just want to clarify that. Moving on. You can give nitro sublingually as a spray or a dissolving tablet. Most protocols are for a total of up to three nitroglycerin doses, five minutes apart. So the way you do it is you check the blood pressure first. If it's greater than 100 systolic, you can administer your first dose of nitro. Then five minutes later, you check the blood pressure again. And if the blood pressure is stable and the patient's still having pain, you can give a second dose. Same thing for the third dose. Wait five minutes, recheck the pressure and the pain level to determine if the third dose is even needed and if it's safe to administer. But sublingual nitros are big doses. So you can also start a nitroglycerin drip, which allows you to give smaller doses and titrate up or down in response to your patient's pain level and to their blood pressure. The final component of Mona is A for aspirin. Please don't call it a blood thinner because it's not. Aspirin prevents platelet aggregation, meaning it makes the platelets nice and slippery so they slide right past each other rather than sticking together in groups. The preferred dose is 162 or 325 milligrams of baby aspirin so the patient can just chew it up and it can take effect quicker. Now, let's talk about Mona with inferior wallamize. Remember I said that the inferior wallamize are usually from a blockage of the right coronary artery or RCA? 
The RCA feeds the SA node, the pacemaker of the heart, the AV node, the gatekeeper, and often the right ventricle. So depending on how far down the obstruction is, you could have bradycardias, heart block, and a dead or dying right ventricle. That is why the patient had bradycardia and hypotension, even though she was feeling and exhibiting anxiety. About 40% of inferior wall MIs obstruct the flow to the right ventricle, which dramatically increases morbidity and mortality and makes nitroglycerin not such a great idea. You see, the right ventricle is a thin-walled chamber. It isn't the mighty super squeezer that the left ventricle is. It doesn't have to circulate the blood to the entire body. Just move it over a little bit to the lungs next door. So it relies a lot on the passive flow of blood through the heart and is very dependent on volume and adequate blood pressure to get that blood to the lungs. So if the right ventricle is dead or dying, it's completely dependent on adequate blood volume and blood pressure to keep the blood moving through to the lungs. If it's lacking in either of those, blood starts to back up. And just like you would see in a patient with right heart failure, you could see JVD or jugular venous distension or peripheral edema. So we love nitro for every other STEMI, but the vasodilation that is so helpful in dropping preload and blood pressure for all other STEMIs could have some harmful effects on a patient with a STEMI that has right ventricular involvement because the RV is so dependent on that volume and pressure to move the blood. For inferior wall MIs with ST segment elevation, you'll see it in leads 2, 3, and AVF. We can discrete those patients with good old MOA and just hold the nitro. Gotta interrupt again here. So the American Heart Association still has inferior wall MI as a contraindication for nitroglycerin, along with blood pressure below 90 systolic and if the patient is currently taking phosphodiesterase inhibitors like Viagra. We just don't wanna drop the blood pressure so low that we decrease cardiac output and reduce coronary perfusion. While we know nitroglycerin decreases blood pressure, guys, it decreases blood pressure for all types of myocardial ischemic patients. In a study by Robichaud et al., they found that nitroglycerin decreases blood pressure by 30 millimeters of mercury in 23.4% of patients with inferior wall MI and in 23.9% of non-inferior wall MI patients. So about the same in both groups, which means we should be cautious in giving nitroglycerin to all patients if they already have a soft or even normal blood pressure. But if you have a hypertensive patient with an inferior wall MI, it may not be as unsafe as we once thought to administer nitro to them. The half-life is so short, about three minutes, that even if you drop the blood pressure for a bit, it would wear off pretty quickly. So rather than just saying no nitro for inferior wall MIs, there needs to be a little more to this discussion. As with everything in medicine, Patients are nuanced, and we have to take so many things into consideration to provide the best care. Sometimes, myself included, in our attempts to simplify things, we can lose sight of some of the little exceptions to the rule or the rationale behind the rule altogether. So, with inferior wall MIs, rather than just saying no nitro, let's take it a little further. Let's get a right-sided EKG to confirm the presence of right heart involvement. So like I said, the American Heart Association still has inferior wall MIs as a contraindication for nitroglycerin, but we can do a right-sided EKG to determine if there's actually right heart involvement. 
Remember, only about 40% of inferior wall MIs have right heart ischemia. So taking the extra two minutes to get a right-sided EKG can help us really guide therapy and know what we need to focus on. Then, if there is right heart involvement, the goal is not simply to prevent dropping the preload by not giving nitro. How about the goal be to optimize preload by ensuring adequate fluid volume to support the right heart? So to rephrase my last statement from the original episode, rather than hold the nitro with inferior wall MIs, I'd like to say actually instead, consider the pathophysiology and optimize preload with small, safe fluid boluses. Only give nitroglycerin in the face of hypertension and do so with great caution. And remember that other drugs like morphine and diuretics also decrease preload. So I'll be posting a little educational blurb about right-sided EKGs on my Instagram this week. So make sure to follow me at the Rapid Response RN to check it out. Okay, I think I explained or expanded upon my original statement enough about nitroglycerin. So let's get back to the breakdown. Next, I want to talk about the nurse's role in all of this. I want to start by reiterating how this nurse saved this patient's life. Even the patient was downplaying her chest pain as anxiety, but the nurse looked past the surface easiest explanation and used critical thinking to deduce that something more serious was going on. Strong work. When your patient has chest pain, you want to take it serious every time. And even if you do think it's anxiety or non-cardiac in origin, what does it hurt to get an EKG? As soon as your patient tells you they have chest pain, your next question should be, when did it start? Where is the pain located? Does it radiate anywhere? What word would you use to describe the pain? Is it sharp? Is it dull? Is it throbbing? Is it achy? Is it sore? Is it pressure? Is it stabbing? Does anything make the pain better? Does anything make the pain worse? Does it feel any different when I press on your chest? Do you have shortness of breath? Have you ever had pain like this before? If so, when was the last time? All these questions can help determine if this might be cardiac in nature or chest pain from another cause. And there are a lot of causes. Trauma, pleurisy, indigestion, sore from coughing, to name a few. And of course, anxiety. If your patient isn't on a monitored bed, then put them on the monitor using the defibrillator on your floor. That way you can take a quick look at the rhythm and see it live. And if it were to change, you'll know right away rather than waiting on telly to call you. The other perk of having the defibrillator hooked up and ready to go is, if the patient goes into a ventricular arrhythmia, you aren't fumbling around trying to set up to defibrillate. You can just charge in shock. And let me tell you, I have cared for so many STEMI patients who were talking to me one second, and the next they were in pulseless VTAC. When the ventricles aren't getting enough oxygen, they misbehave. We want to be one step ahead with the defibrillator to give those ventricles a little spanking and get them back in line with the SA node. The final thing to remember when it comes to responding to your patient having chest pain is that they don't always go from zero pain to STEMI right away. Sometimes it takes time for the ischemic heart to start showing detectable signs that they're suffering. ST segment changes often don't show up right away, and cardiac enzymes can take a couple hours to get to the level that's detectable in the blood. So just because your patient has a negative EKG and negative enzymes the first go around, we may not see any EKG changes or elevated enzymes until the second or third set of serial diagnostics. So don't write it off as non-cardiac just yet. Alrighty, we have covered a lot of material in this show. So I just want to do a quick recap of the main points. 
Number one, we take chest pain seriously. Put the patient on the monitor, notify the doctor, call the rapid response team, or activate the chest pain protocol, or whatever process your hospital has in place to respond to chest pain. It would be better to sound the alarm and activate the team or protocol and it not be a STEMI than to ignore it and allow the heart muscle to literally die. Next, if it is appearing to be an acute coronary syndrome, the doctor will likely order Mona for your patient. But I wouldn't go administering the nitro to your patient until the doc has actually seen the EKG and verify that we don't have right ventricular involvement because we know the harmful effects of nitro when you have a right coronary artery occlusion. Okay, and finally, if this is a STEMI that we're dealing with, it's all hands on deck to save the patient's life. We need to get them to the cath lab ASAP. The more time we waste getting the patient to the team that can open up the occluded vessel, you know, the high-tech heart plumbers, the more heart muscle is dying. So time is muscle, grab a friend, and let's do this. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient.